Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 15, Rule Britannia. Today we are going to get started with a nation that technically started and ended this era as a bona fide winner. Except that technically being a winner means there is a god-awful amount of baggage to go along with it. I'm talking about the United Kingdom and its impressively big-ass empire. This is a weird period of time for the British, as they find themselves at the peak of their empire's extent, but at the same time realizing that maybe world empires aren't all there is to life. As I begin to set the stage, they and their dominions form the largest territorial bloc on the planet. It rules over a sizable fraction of the globe's population. And the cherry on top is that it managed to escape the First World War with no direct damage to its territorial base. Which, all in all, was probably the best set of silver linings that that could be asked for, given they left an entire generation buried in the fields of Flanders. There, they more than took their share of knocks, and by the end of the conflict had bled themselves in a similar manner to the French. However, the British were still in a powerful spot, relatively. The prerequisite Western Front bloodletting and occasional imperial embarrassment like Gallipoli notwithstanding. And as discussed in the treaty episodes and French introduction, they oftentimes were seen as leaders to set the tone of international relations, their partnership often considered a prerequisite for lasting settlements. Like the French, we're going to try to banish hindsight for the time being, as their decades-long imperial decline is usually marked to start right around here, after World War I. Normally, a history will either problematically lament the looming demise of the empire, or actively relish the comeuppance that invisibly stalks old John Bull. We will instead focus on a society in transition, unknowingly moving into a much different era than what was expected once the great victory of 1918 was achieved. Much of the political elite in Parliament wanted nothing more than to return their world, if not the greater world, back to the way it had been in 1914. For the rest of society, they of course simply wanted peace and prosperity, perhaps shared a bit more fairly than before. It was that last part, the prosperity, that would send society on the home isles off on a wildly different course than what had been before the war. Now before I really get going, this intro is going to diverge from my episodes on Italy and France in that I won't be focusing so much on the pre-war years leading to World War I. Unlike Italy, it did not struggle with issues of identity, and unlike France, had no blood enemies to revenge themselves upon. Now, most of Britain's challenges began with the changes caused by the war itself. Like friend and foe alike, four years of grinding war left some marks on British society. One of the more obvious ones would be the role of government in daily life. Before 1914, the British had a very, very unregulated free market economy, and its society was dominated by the upper classes of society. And yes, that class system still echoes to this day, but it was crushingly powerful back in these days. It was their desire for markets and resources that drove the empire to expand to nearly every corner of the world, and they were the ones to extract the maximum benefit from it. All the while, they suffered next to no oversight in how to manage their affairs, even in the factories and businesses on home soil. If that sounds like an excellent recipe for making a destitute lower class toiling away for subsistence wages, that's exactly what happened. In Britain, Poverty was rampant, and living conditions would generously be described as squalid. For most, the government was a distant entity, and did not intrude directly into the lives of the working class. The war, though, changed that forever. The British economy had been terribly ill-prepared for war, despite it being in the offing for years. 
The idea had been that France and Russia would duke it out with the Germans, while the British would throw up a blockade and shut down their economy. As we all know, things didn't work out that way. The initial invasion of France caused enough of a crisis that the relatively tiny British army was shuttled across the channel and thrown into the fray to try and slow the Germans down. This did not go well, as an army geared towards colonial battles suddenly found itself going toe-to-toe with an opponent built purely to win the big battles. Within three months of the war's start, half the expeditionary force had had become casualties, and the Germans had dug into their gains. It dawned on British leadership that the war was going to be a long one, and now they had to actually mobilize not just an army, but a whole war economy. The state put out a call for volunteers at first, and were met with enormous enthusiasm, as many wanted to go off and be heroes, or at least not be taken as a wimp. It was all well and good initially, and the UK for the first time created a mass army. The enthusiasm didn't last, and they had to implement conscription eventually. But they were able to more than keep an army in the field and its size would balloon from less than half a million men to one that hit 4.5 million by the end. That army would in due course suffer close to a million fatalities during these four years, but it managed to hold together and grind its way to a win alongside their allies. That raised the question of how to actually equip it, though. There wasn't much of a land-focused military-industrial complex. Britain had traditionally been preoccupied with naval affairs. Now factories had to be converted to producing munitions. Management of railways had to be consolidated to better manage that production, and the workers' trade unions were expanded in order to better organize labor for the war effort. An expedient of an income tax was established to help pay for the war, something that was seen as a temporary measure at the time, but would become a permanent fixture. In case you're remembering the problems that Italy and France ran into after the war with loans, Britain also took out huge debt. But unlike everybody else, they were on firm enough financial footing that they could be managed without suffering the prospect of a societal collapse when they came due. Before the war, London had been the financial center of the world, and the enormous investments around the globe helped maintain a semblance of fiscal normalcy both during and after the war. Britain's main concern in the debt trade after the war was getting the U.S. to go easy on France and Italy, mostly because those two nations had also taken out big loans in London as well, and the Brits were anxious to get paid too. So while the UK certainly took on financial burdens, they did not render themselves destitute. With the nation mobilized, common citizens took up the cause and rallied to support the nation. Women, especially, were vital, taking up not just desk jobs, but also positions in the factories. Their presence on the factory floors caused no small amount of tension with existing labor groups, as the women were paid less, and as a result, there was a concern that they would be preferred over men working for a higher wage later on down the road. This was countered with assurances that it was only for the duration of the war, which was actually a promise that was kept. Overall, the efforts to organize labor and rally the people to support the war were very successful. There weren't any major disruptions, even when gloomy news poured in from the the front. There was some opposition from smaller elements of the Labor Party and others who felt the war didn't serve the public interest, but they were marginalized and ignored. The people were, by and large, focused merely on the business of winning the war and sorting out the peace thereafter. By the end, the nation had been mobilized to a startling degree. Industry, transportation, even the food supply was being managed by ministries in London. A nation that had previously been close to anarcho-capitalism was now a centralized state. And sure, national leadership said at the time that it was all going back to normal after victory, 
but how it was intended to completely put the genie back in the bottle was left unsaid and unplanned. Diplomatically, the British traditionally had tried to remain aloof before the war. They had the biggest empire and were the center of global finances. It had been a good thing for them not to start up any trouble. For decades, Russia had been the biggest boogeyman, with an ever-expanding empire that reached perilously close to the crown jewel of India. But in 1905, they had been laid low by the Japanese, Britain's ally and protege in East Asia, so that fear was lessened. The U.S. was a growing economically behemoth, but didn't have designs on the empire. That left Germany, whose economy and army were both formidable. But even that wasn't a deal-breaking concern to the British. They had the Royal Navy, the biggest and best oceanic force on the planet. Even if a German army took over Europe, it couldn't touch the empire. Of course, the Germans couldn't help themselves and started building a massive fleet of their own, big enough that the only target could be the Royal Navy, and ergo, the empire. This got London's attention, and when the Germans brazenly kept expanding navally, the British finally threw in with the French and their buddy, the Russians. When the war finally started, the unstated war aim for Britain was clear. Remove Germany as a colonial threat. Which, from that perspective, the war went great. The leadership of the UK also did not remain static during the fighting, and important splits broke out that would greatly affect the post-war years. The UK spent most of the war with a coalition government between the Liberals and the Conservatives. Now keep in mind that back then, the right-left split for the two parties mostly concerned free trade. The Liberals liked free trade as it had traditionally suited an exporting economy like the UK's, while the Conservatives preferred a more closed imperial system that focused on protecting domestic businesses from foreign competition. Really thrilling stuff that meant when push came to shove in World War I, they had few qualms about partnering up in government. Now, before the war, and through the early days of the conflict, Parliament was controlled solely by the Liberals and their leader, Herbert Henry Asquith. The failures, though, of those initial battles to bring decisive victory, and then the outright disaster at Gallipoli, forced Asquith to form a coalition government with the Conservatives, which, given the ideological pause during the fighting, was not an immediate political problem. Asquith, though, did not properly reckon with the growing influence of one David Lloyd George, the next most prominent liberal and an important minister in various functions of the cabinet up to this point. By the end of 1916, Lloyd George had managed to secure backing from not only most of the Liberal Party, but the other major groups in Parliament as well. In December of that year, Asquith was out of the premiership and Lloyd George was in. This little saga bears telling as it effectively splits the Liberal Party in two between the Asquith and Lloyd George factions. The Conservatives, technically still junior partners in the coalition, were understandably overjoyed. This actually presented a significant break in the UK's politics that still echoes to modern day. The Conservatives and Liberals had held sway as the dominant two parties in Parliament since time immemorial. From here, the Liberals would fade from the scene as the more upstart Labour Party took its spot as one of two dominant parties. But I'm getting ahead of myself, as there is still time to come before that point. Now, as for the Conservatives, they were led by two fellows doomed for obscurity. The first is Bonar Law, and yes, that is actually his name. The other was Austin Chamberlain, older half-brother to Neville Chamberlain, whom you might know as the appeasement guy in the late 30s. Which, I suppose given that alternative, obscurity isn't really so bad. The Conservatives, for their part, looked forward to maintaining the wartime tariffs protecting British industry and beating up on the Irish, which I will have many words on coming up. 
A real turnabout for conservative power came in the elections of December 1918, right as the war had just wound down. Similar to the case in Italy, this one saw an increase in franchisement take effect, as the awkward point had been raised of returning soldiers not being able to vote after winning the war. Nobody was going to vote against the soldiers at this point, so Parliament expanded the voting rights. Now, women over 30 and all men over 21 could vote. Don't ask me how they arrived at 30 for the women's cutoff. I just assumed they had to force some kind of misogyny into the new voting laws, or else it would break with some kind of tradition. The effect of this change was immediately enormous, as the voting population instantly doubled. The conservatives at this point had not quite broken with Lloyd George's faction of the liberals, though, and the two groups coordinated their election campaigns so as not to impact each other's turf and to maintain the the, the unity government that they had uh, managed through the war. Now, this arrangement was referred to as the Coupon Campaign. Uh, It was a disparaging reference to wartime rationing through the use of government-issued coupons to obtain certain goods back during the dark days of the U-boat blockade. Uh, Now it referred to coupons being used to secure a seat in Parliament. Yeah, this uh, this, this was political humor back in the day, folks. Now, Asquith and his liberal faction didn't want to go along with the coalition government and decided to stand apart from the coordinating scheme. This turned out to be a massive mistake, and Asquith's wing of the party was solidly crushed. They were crushed so thoroughly that the Conservatives wound up getting over half the seats in Parliament for themselves, with Lloyd George and his faction getting a distant second. Now, to us cynical modern observers, this would be the moment the Conservatives simply shunt Lloyd George off to the side and, at best, offer him and a couple of liberals some cabinet posts as junior members. This was a more gentlemanly age, and as the Conservatives had ran under the pretense of coalition and ergo keeping Lloyd George as Prime Minister, they stuck to their guns and agreed to follow the Liberal lead. For now. The definition of gentlemanly in these days was to give the other guy just enough rope to hang himself with. And what about the Labour Party? You know, the one that is much more prominent in modern UK politics today. Well, the Labour Party didn't do half bad in this initial election either. They actually got the second most votes overall although they only scored a much smaller fraction of the seats. This is due to how conservative voters were rock-solid, while anything further left split among Labour and the two Liberal factions. This distortion of how people voted versus who actually went to Parliament was another nail in the Liberal coffin. People definitely noticed just how the split voting put the government in conservative hands. In the future, the more left-leaning Liberals were going to switch permanently over to Labour. But just what was the Labour Party back in those days? Ostensibly at this time, it was a committed leftist party, all four seizing the means of production and redistributing resources evenly. And given the course of the Russian Revolution, there arose no small sympathy and admiration for the Bolsheviks among labor, or at least some of the members of labor. There was a very noticeable split between the actual socialists and the more centrist reformists, which, yes, this is a split that bedevils every single leftist party. This group, though, reflects new territory in British political life, and the rise to prominence of the party will be met with no small consternation from the old guard. Beforehand, the goal of political outsiders at their most ambitious was to work their way into the system and leapfrog to a higher social stratum. Now there was a viable political party whose very policy was demolishing that social stratum. Regardless of where society went, politics certainly weren't going back to the old days. No. The sacrifices made over the past four years had simply been too great, 
and the efforts made to win too strenuous to simply set the clock back. The streets in numerous areas would carry with them a dearth of young men not coming back home. And while British casualty figures might not seem as impressive compared to the Germans or French, keep in mind that the Isles had a much smaller population base to go around. The country had its own lost generation, with widows raising families with no father, single women having far fewer opportunities to find a partner, and a steady stream of the permanently disfigured serving as a constant physical reminder of the war's toll. There was relief and hope for the future in those days, though. Workers were being paid better and being jerked around less. The expectation was that this would continue going into peacetime. While it was expected that women would be forced back into the homemaker lifestyle, the experience had understandably been a transformative experience for many. Before, they had been expected to keep the home while the husband worked. This was the world in which they were taught and what they knew. Due to the opportunity for wartime employment, though, masses of women earned a wage of their own in jobs and trades of their own. This might not seem like much to the modern listener. After all, I'm just describing getting your first job. But the way forward on gender equality is always economic equality, and women becoming part of the workforce, even if only temporary, was a major step in opening the eyes of many women to what they were capable of. The pressures of the war had also been eased as a result of the victory. The siege of the U-boats had been lifted, and searchlights scanning for bombers and zeppelins no longer kept London awake at night. Now that we've covered the starting position of the UK internally, let's have a brief overview of the British Empire circa 1919. Right across the Irish Sea, there was already trouble brewing. As you might have been made aware by a vaguely Irish friend or acquaintance, Ireland was not actually free in these days. They were a part of the UK. Now, they did have representation in the UK's Parliament, but the population imbalance between England and the other regions versus the Catholic core of Ireland meant that those who wanted Irish autonomy were hopelessly outnumbered in that body. Moreover, it also meant that Irish policy was set in London usually by Englishmen or Scots. And just to get it out in the open, while there was no distinction between Ireland as we know it and Northern Ireland at this point, in any official capacity, the two had settled into a very familiar split already. Protestants up north favored remaining integrated with the United Kingdom, while the rest of the island was nervously casting about for an escape hatch. Famously, there had been a rising against English rule in 1916 at the height of the war. Less famously, it fell to pieces immediately and made everybody look bad. In fact, the ease of which the British put the rising down kind of indicated that popular support for that uprising might not have been that great. So, of course, the authorities acted in a heavy-handed manner and executed a bunch of the uprisers, creating instant martyrs and sympathizers for the cause. While the uprising had failed, much of the island had been antagonized into giving it another try. What Irish independence actually was supposed to look like was a matter of no small division among the Irish themselves. On the most extreme end, there were calls to separate Ireland entirely from the British Empire and go it alone as an independent republic. A more middle course was splitting off as a dominion, similar to the kind of deal Canada and Australia were getting. Lastly, there was also the possibility of accepting home rule with an Irish parliament, but remaining within the UK for purposes of international relations. Naturally, the rest of the Britons had opinions of their own, and most were not terribly interested in an uh, Irexit, which is a terrible phrase I will never say again. So, a divided island of underdogs was set to clash with their imperial overlords, who were really in no mood for it come 1919. Further afield of the British Isles were the Dominions. The Dominions were not colonies per se. They did have internal autonomy while still being considered part of the empire. 
the League of Nations would even allow the Dominion's representation in that body. Importantly, there weren't all that many rules to how the system worked. It had been established that each Dominion would manage their own affairs, and were technically equal to the United Kingdom, except everybody knew they really weren't all that equal, and it was understood that London would at least set the tone when it came to foreign relations. At least in theory. The former colonies were certainly respectful of their mother country, but were also sensitive to oversteps and perceived slights. They were a far-flung collection, consisting of Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, and Australia. Okay, yes, Newfoundland was also an independent dominion in this period, but before it's over, it will have disbanded and returned to being a simple colony of the empire. So I won't be bringing them up too much. Anyway, all four of the primary dominions have their own set of desires and issues that will be covered later. And then there was a more general collection of colonies, protectorates, and mandates spread across the map. Most important ones being in Africa and Asia. In Africa, the UK found itself with a sprawling set of colonies that still had to be properly integrated, which is to say exploited, all the while governing on a shoestring budget. There was the occupation of Egypt as well, which, while it was not officially a part of the empire, was very much so handled like one. This was part of Britain's long-standing obsession with the Suez Canal that vital lifeline to India. The new Middle Eastern mandates offer their own troubles, as the UK continued to encourage the Zionist settlements in Palestine, and in Iraq where they were attempting to nation-build while securing the all-important oil deposits there. In East Asia, there was the continued interest in China, especially through Shanghai and the directly administered city of Hong Kong. But interests also went as far into the interior as, as the city of Wuhan. Holdings in Malaya and Borneo provided much rubber and other raw materials, and the city of Singapore was fated to be built up into the UK's fortress in the region. And saving the best for last is the Raj in India. India then, as now, was a massive and complex territorial unit, but the immense wealth and population base meant that for the British, it was the center of their imperial policies. Most all of their decision-making outside of Europe focused on how it would affect their position in the subcontinent. I'll admit this is just the briefest of overviews for the British Empire, and that's why it'll be getting its own set of episodes to give you a better context to its inner workings and how each piece fit into the bigger picture of this time period. Okay, so that's the starting position for Britain going into their supposed years of triumph, but just like the French, they'll find they've gotten more than they bargained for. Next week, we'll take a look at Britain's challenges on the world stage and back at home during the initial time of peace. See you then, and as always, Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.